ベトナムでの戦争が長引く中その影響を受けて日本でも学生運動が盛んになり親子の断絶がそこに見られるようになりましたそんな時代にヒットした曲です昭和44年新宿の女藤恵子さんです
<笑>そう、オールフジシーズハイディングいや。ビーンがフジョシ。オーエブリワンズハイディング。バイナネロサムシングゼイデアショーインバリアルプレイスヨーリアルライフゼイナバセイ。バイナネロサムシングゼイデ
animation. Only the animation one. And the other case in Fa is also crazy. I, I like me, and she maybe she, she likes real people. Real people, yeah.、Mm-hmm. But some people don't like any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She just only likes animation. Right, and you do. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just crazy. Just crazy. <laughs> I'm glad you are. It's good well, because I think, um, I think BL is good actually because I think in America so many people have. Desire to、mm-hmm. see boys like this, you、mm-hmm. know, they want to, but they they don't have、mm-hmm. anywhere, so they get really scary about K pop、mm-hmm. and boy bands,、mm-hmm. and they don't have like the same, you know, manga or whatever, and they have to read it on creepy websites only.、Mm. But in Japan, you can go buy books, yeah, just normal bookstore. Yeah, we can go 10 minute walk and go buy BL、mm. right now, and also these days. B A books couple is cute. Yeah, cute they are cute. Yeah, it's very cute. It looks oshare. Yes, there are so many movie and then stuff. Yeah, it's on TV all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I think it's good that Japan just puts it out there.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why is everything fucking Bluetooth today? Um. Okay. Um. So yeah, you can say hi to Rodrigo. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm good. Um. Sit. Sit down, boy. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I I assume this is Rodrigo's first time on a podcast. It is、oh, Rodrigo's first time on a podcast. That's exciting.、Um, okay, so, so are we going to? Are do you, did you still want to do like the first half on some sort of yaoi, and then the second half on Gengora Tagame? Or yeah, because I didn't pick any yaoi, so we can talk about it vaguely. Vaguely, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know talk, it vaguely、yeah. enough that you know I can. I can sort of riff on it. That's kind of what I'm thinking too, and so I think what we'll do is like the first like twenty minutes we'll talk about Yaoi, then twenty minutes on Takame, and then we'll boot Rodrigo out and do the the final bit. You're booted. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Um. I'm already recording, so I'll just introduce you both. Really great. Okay, well, konbanwa. It's Zach Lingli Tichi. I'm so popular, and tonight is the conclusion to my three weeks of gay pride discourse that I've been up to. I started with a conversation about Andrew Holloran, moved on to Larry Kramer, and tonight we are discussing the final conclusion to all gay culture, which is Japanese boys love and bara manga, and a、uh, special surprise for the end. So I'll ask who my special guests are. Who are you? Hi,、uh, this is Telepathy Party John,、um, and I'm here with、uh, my best friend and roommate Rodrigo. Um, introduce yourself.、Uh, I cook. Hey, girl. <laughs> <laughs> he, he cooks for me. Yeah.、Um, oh my god. <laughs> I'd also just like to say that、um, Rodrigo doesn't know what Red Scare is, 
he the name Anakachian means nothing to him. Um, I showed him that scene from Scary of 61st Street and yes. he, felt, he felt absolutely nothing. Um, so this is, for this little podcast circle, this is a true novelty, um, considering that everyone is pretty much in the know. <laughs> we have someone who is really pure and untainted. I'm really excited about exactly. that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that the conception for this episode began when I knew I was going to want to do three weeks of talking about gay art. And John and I were trying to figure out who to chat about from the second we finished our episode on Delaney and, and did Hog. And having already done him, we had no idea where to go. And uh, eventually it came to the notion of, of Japanese boys' love and to borrow manga. But this three-week cycle, we began in the first two weeks and identified the artless drudge and absolute death spell that gayness has come under. We have seen the lack of any powerful moving gay artist, and we have yearned for the return of a Larry Kramer monument-like figure to return to the stage and have uh, come up with nothing. So today is kind of the last cry out for that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think that in some ways, uh, you know, finding finding a kind of, uh, a kind of, you know, gay artistic icon from Japan, which is just now sort of starting to really experiment with the kind of Western equality that we've, seen in the United States is sort of, it's sort of an interesting, I don't know, it's sort of an interesting sh shift because, um, especially with like, uh, with my, my brother's husband, which one of Gengoro Tagame's uh, manga, it's interesting reading that and seeing the ways he introduces what is to like a, a Western audience, very elementary, um, very elementary, elementary aspects of sort of like gay culture and gay life. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. Um, it, he, there, there is a kind of like, there is a kind of bizarre innocence to, um, to the, you know, the, uh, angelic lunacy, sex, the angelic sexual lunacy of Gengora Tagame. Yeah, it's exactly that. And, before we get into Tagame, I was really sort of tickled by the reason you wanted to bring your roommate on, John. So oh, if yeah. you wouldn't mind telling the, <laughs> the muse behind that. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I mean, Rodrigo is my uh, bisexual muscle gay oh, roommate. <laughs> um, like a true... I, he actually looks like a character in a Tagame manga. Oh my god. Um, it's and, true. Yeah, and so I just, he, he also was the one who, I had known about Gengoro Tagame from just sort of, you know, pitter-pattering around the gay, the, the dark recesses of the gay internet. Um, but the first person to ever <clears throat> actually, like, send me links and to point me specifically at him was Rodrigo. Um, <laughs> so I, when we, when we were sort of brainstorming and you brought him up, I just thought like R Rodrigo, he, he's going to have some wisdom on this. I think the first Gengor Tagami comic I ever read was probably like around 13. 
Like I just like yeah, looking on the web, and it was the Cretian cow, I believe. The Cretian cow. Yeah, <laughs> which is literally about feces getting like fed to the Minotaur, but the Minotaur instead of eating it, just like, yeah, nice things happen. <laughs> <laughs> well. John introduced the idea to me, and I was uh, sent Rodrigo's Twitter account, which is a beautiful sort of, like, MoMA-esque gallery of, like, uh, different videos, like, assorted 20-second uh, clips of men doing different things with their chest. So I was... <laughs> I knew immediately that we were on to the right path here. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, it's sort of like the... It's sort of as though, like, the... It's like the male physique as its own kind of bondage like literally these sort of like these muscles like bursting on the verge of just like of just sort of corporeal like just sort of like corporeal um like explosion or something um like these just like these like breasty men um just you know, like... <laughs> well, the really interesting thing, I think, with Gengor Tagame is that there is kind of, like, this, like, like, I don't know, I don't like, and I think a lot of people go with the word female, and I, I think it's the wrong word. I think it's more kind of this sort of, like, bottom submissive energy that ultimately, I think, also kind of, like, encapsulates a little bit of what we see as a mother's role, as the, like, motherly... Like, I've always maintained... Uh, male like men and women are just kink roles yeah. at the end of the day and i think Ngor Tagame kind of sort of creates his own like sort of like gay version of that basically especially like feeding off the whole ideas of like honor in yeah in japanese culture but yeah it's like it's really interesting because there is kind of this sort of like tender sort of like carrying almost in a motherly sort of way so i'm not surprised he's like a really big peck guy you know he yeah. loves people. <laughs> yeah. so many of his like they tend to be one of yeah. like the scenes where it really packs a punch when exactly. like they go for the nipple yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, like, absolutely um, and especially when, like, those, those like, tender nipples are sort of gently brushed, these characters, uh, th these Bara characters, like, arch their backs in a static sort of pain joy. Um, this, like, this, this truly, like, very, like, Christian-esque kind of sort of religious ecstasy. Um, well, what I love about it is, like, I, I see it as they're basically being, like, because, yeah, they're, like, they're very masculine, and so, like, they have all this, like, pent-up, all this, like, energy, basically, that they constantly have to be, like, projecting and constantly. So this humiliation, in a way, is, like, a sort of release. It's, like, they need to be dominated. They need to, especially <laughs> because they're very masculine. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so all of this really glimmering sort of, giving in to the gay pit of sexuality is predated by a really specific and special kind of art that has been in Japan since the, the 60s, and that's called Boy's Love, which is most commonly known as Yaoi in the West. And this is an art form that is made almost exclusively for teenage girls and for older women, and it features the relationship of two 
young boys usually, very elegant, feminine men with long, gorgeous limbs, um, becoming exposed to sexuality with each other in a way that's both very taboo and guilty, but also extremely explicit. So it's this meeting of gentle easing into sexuality that we now kind of see with K-pop and with boy groups that sort of erupts into a uh, fabulous disgusting sex scene so i'm curious about what both of your experiences with boys love are uh well so i mean yaoi was pretty much my introduction to gay pornography um when i was little like i i spent a lot of time on deviant art in fact the first time that my parents ever blocked something on the internet was because i had searched some disgusting yaoi term on art. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure the thing my mom ended up blocking was just a specific page that was for some reason like a Helsing uh, sort of fan art. Um, like this this really like sort of <laughs> this like very feminized um, sort of there's always sort of that glowing aura that like glowing feminine sort of Sakura petal aura around these illustrations. Um, and from that I started to um i started to find manga titles like like loveless um oh my god loveless is one of the first i ever read too yeah well it, it's because what, what was it was it tokyo pop i think tokyo pop yeah. published all of those pretty early and um they carried know. that shit at the teen section at the library yeah. in rural oregon where i lived um yeah, all of those and and Godfather is was that what it was called? Godfather that that mm-hmm. weird Butler manga. Um, oh, that and like Black Butler. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and then from there, it's sort of um, it's sort of branched off um, into. I, I'm trying to think what some what some of the other titles were. Um, there was. Yeah. Wait. What was what was your experience with with Yaoi? Well, I had been into anime for a while. It was like eighth grade. It was like the peak of my time as a major weeaboo. And that's when I got my first girlfriend, actually. And uh, her name was Irene. And she loved Yaoi. She really loved it. She (laughs) drew Yaoi fan art that she put onto DeviantArt. Um, She was like really into the shipping culture behind picking two boys and matching them with each other and getting into the extreme details of their relationship and she sort of got me into it actually because at the time I was you know bisexual of course (laughs) so at that time I uh, was still trying to sail on that ship and so uh, she was kind of giving me like the first outlet to figure out my sexuality and she gave me a really dirty one that I don't remember the title of and it was about these two boys in the archery club <laughs> and they uh fuck on the archery training ground so then I like went on to read Loveless and like Dojin on the internet and of course like you pick like your dumb couples from anime and video games and like look up specific art right. from that so uh I think, I think people my big couple was like Ichigo means. and Grimjow from Bleach <laughs> yeah oh my god of course oh yeah I was obsessed with um that one panel from Naruto when Naruto and Sasuke kiss like of course that itself was actually such an iconic image um like a a, re- a real like eternal image in my 
history as as a gay man um <laughs> and uh yeah i i i think like in terms of these girls who were obsessed with yaoi at a at, at a young age in like 7th and 8th grade it feels like the most sort of perverted and sort of sex adverse girls that i knew were also into this kind of humiliating genre of pitting these androgynous boys against each other in these in this sort of like sexual arena um and there was always this kind of like sort of like sort of giggling and almost sort of sadistic sort of quality to their fascination with it which i think is kind of interesting considering that your girlfriend was kind of experimenting with yaoi and like maybe in a way like you in <laughs> in, in in a sort of perverse way no doubt. I mean, a lot of these people who get really into Yaoi, they have a habit of then actually, this is very true for Japan, I can't really recall for America, but they do try to start imagining these scenarios on the men who truly exist in their lives, like the boys that they know. And I think every like teenager in like middle America or in the suburbs or basically anywhere outside of major cities like has to experience like the yaoi horse girl like (laughs) beginning to like leak her perverse ideas about sexuality onto you well the really interesting thing is that to me yeah it's kind of what Ngoro Tagame does but but by a through physical violence I think ultimately, like these comics, like on the Gortagamas, it's through like top energy. Well, like on the Yaoi side, I think it's more bottom energy, but it's the idea of having control, of having like this yeah. almost like godlike control and an immense it's over somebody's body, over somebody's will. Well, I think with women, I think they crave or they fantasize more about the ability to like control and have the perfect boy, you know, have the perfect, like, personality, the perfect, like, sexual being to them. And so, like, yeah, like, I, I believe to some degree, like, that's, their violence is the emotional. That's where they get off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And it's, like, I think that Yaoi is so popular with this young group of women so much is because, like, they are beginning to experience, like, the first terror of, like, knowing they're going to be penetrated like knowing that in order for them to have a sexual existence it's like to be literally violated and so there's of course like so much anxiety about like masculine male figures who like symbolize literal violence and like rape so to be able to box that sexuality into like two pretty boys like defiling each other and like this constantly blushing state of embarrassment it makes a lot of sense (laughs) yeah exactly um I mean it it sort of reminds me like I think in a lot of ways for for a lot of heterosexual artists I think it has actually sort of been it's sort of been a staple of exploring sexuality through homosexual couples for a long time like it sort of reminds me of Camille Paglia she sort of makes the distinction between homosexual art and homoerotic art um and she like she sort of maintains that they're actually two distinct things and um you you see so much actually like lesbian media produced by straight men you have like blue's warmest color you had that movie uh duke of burgundy um and i think like a lot of a lot of straight men find uh or 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 express a kind of erotic and 
sort of uh, sort of sexual purity through the avatar of two sort of lesbian women, um, or on the other hand, like straight women exploring their own sexualities through the avatars of of two sort of two sort of like homosexual aphebe men who are these sort of like these sort of pure buttery plastic capsules of um of sort of like of sort of like very well preserved and uh and like maintained sexuality in a way that's so gorgeous and i think exceedingly true like i think that's the same reason that like a lot of them turn out to be horse girls as well (laughs) yeah because the horse girls are also mastering their sexuality through their pony exactly um yeah no yeah the 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 horse itself is like is this sort of perfect it's this perfectly contained musculature that they have sort of like very very precise mechanical control over um and yeah i've always been really fascinated by like one of the first um one of the first sort of like documentaries i ever really watched about japan uh was about it was it was this documentary about these two girls who went to one of these like yaoi cafes or like I, I don't know how like ubiquitous these things are because I haven't actually been to Japan and like things tend to be imported to America that reflect like weirdly perverse reflections of Japan that aren't <laughs> necessarily very true yeah. but it was these two girls going to like a yaoi cafe and giggling over these uh over these sort of uh these sort of yaoi titles in front of a camera and I thought it was so interesting. Like, do, do you do you encounter these yaoi cafes? Well, I have never come across a specific yaoi cafe, sadly, but I mean, it's not altogether too different from what's just merely a host bar. And, you know, having done work as a hostess like myself, you know, a lot of the experience of going and paying for a seat at one of these places with people who look the way you want them to is like the same like realm of sexual mastery. And I think that the boys love fandom culture in Japan is, like, a lot more formalized. Um, like, my, my good friend has, like, a boys love sensei that literally, like, lended her all of her comics and, like, taught her about, like, the specifics of how these relationships work and showed her, like, what shops in Osaka, like, carry the right, like, doujin fan comics and shit. And I think a lot of it is that the sexual culture is expressed in such a way that there are really minute and specific paths to get what you want, but there's always like a a corporate element to being able to get what you want. If you just know where to shop and organize yourself correctly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really um, like, I've always thought that there was something a little bit stunted about people who don't move past their kind of, quote-unquote yaoi phase and like by the yaoi phase I mean that sort of broadly in terms of this like kind of this this moment in sexuality where it doesn't push past the kind of homoerotic and Mm -hmm. like doesn't fulfill itself in terms of the homosexual um like it feel which I feel like is kind of where we are in some terms as a culture now where like we've we've opened we, we've opened up a kind of soft sort of uh hrc style kind of suburban homo 
eroticism, but it hasn't, we haven't like really allowed it, allowed these, this sort of gay image to mature into its fully kind of homosexual, sort of fully like degraded Gengora Tagame kind of, uh, kind of position. No, and it's manifested in the kind of like New York image of the bearded effeminate man with a painted nail and the ugly hat who is, you know, subservient to his girlfriend. And the problem is that that's not erotic for anyone, but it's easy for women who don't have a lot of confidence in themselves. Right, exactly. Um, did you ever go, did you ever go to like anime conventions or anything? As oh, Of course, I oh, yeah. sure did. <laughs> I did. I really did. And uh, honestly, I just, I mean, th- really the, the dark part of my history was when I was in eighth grade going into freshman year and I was like stunningly alone <laughs> as like a junior high school student in Oregon. And from one of the anime conventions I was at, we were all on the same forum for a specific anime convention and we found people who all lived in the same area and for about three years every friday night uh me my 15 year old girlfriend and our 16 year old lesbian friend we would get together with a group of like anime guys who were aged 18 21 29 and our parents just like let us do this like let let them like host at our house so i spent like two years of my life like really deeply involved in, <laughs> in this scene the like the the older male like anime predator is a completely true like archetype it's so um, true. like they you know like it's you're you're really not mincing words when you say that these anime conventions are kind of like sort of child predator conventions as well in a weird way um I'm really glad I went. Like it was very good oh, yeah. for self esteem. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's definitely I, like a I meat roller. Um, and also like, it was a kind of early introduction for me, at least, to a kind of very like a very sort of perverse queerness that I didn't really understand. Like you had like grown men walking around carrying Sailor Moon wands and like dressed as like Asuka from Evangelion for some reason. Um, and actually it does feel like, it felt like watching, it felt like watching Evangelion actually and like seeing that 24th episode was for some weird reason a kind of watershed moment in terms of my relationship to Yaoi because I, part of the reason why I can't even really remember any Yaoi titles is because so, so many of them are so generic. Like they, Mm -hmm. they really do follow a... They, they they follow such a uh such a kind of automatic structure where you have sort of the you have sort of the older boy uh the older sort of aloof boy courting the sort of psychologically susceptible uh sort of like younger bottom and you end up just sort of fast forwarding to the sex scene sort of just plunging through all of these titles to see how and where they match your exact sort of erotic preferences which they never yes. do because the audience for yaoi is always women um exactly because i mean i've gone through so many of these and whenever i go to i was in a used bookshop with my boyfriend today and i always go and just like flip through some of them and they're always shocking and like <laughs> the sort of sexuality in them is like even more perverse than a lot of the like the tagame stuff i see and 
it all does kind of like feel like that scene in end of evangelion when the camera snaps to reality and it like shows the movie theater and like someone has like the ray body pillow like in the theater (laughs) stroke of genius honestly stroke no really like that evangelion scene is exactly how it feels like looking at like the when you see like a woman like standing in the bl aisle and it's like especially sublime and bizarre when I'm standing there with my boyfriend in a country where we like can't get married. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and there's like some Obachan just like, you know, age 60 plus like flipping through her like gay boy rape comics. <laughs> um. Well, so I, I actually feel like in America, there's, there's something uh, there, there is sort of a sense of shame to, flipping through yaoi titles in like the yaoi section of Barnes and Noble or at like a Japanese bookstore. Do you you find in Japan that like people feel shy about sort of beelining to the yaoi section or are people pretty kind of open about that? No, it feels very like this is people on their off hour and it's not any of your business what they're looking at. And like we went to the used shop and like went to the porn DVD section, went like right to the animal fucking and found all the horse like penetration videos that you could just buy for ten dollars and no one raises an eye as we're like flitting around there it's like you know 50 year old men are like looking at like umpteenth you know tit job videos what are those called when you what is that called oh <laughs> uh, the 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 when you oh i know the japanese word it's paizuri but i don't remember what it is in english titty fucking God. oh titty fucking yeah <laughs> <laughs> titty fucking which is very popular here and i did a survey and almost all of my japanese female friends have done it oh really um it's It's, so interesting that you can kind of publicly be this like like isabel uber style pervert in japan um whereas like kind of more private erotic emotions seem sort of like harder i guess maybe to maybe i'm just generalizing but like it feels almost the opposite in, in america where like we're like stopping in the boys love section at the Japanese bookstore in LA is like this very weird thing where like people sort of look at you as you're hovering there um but then every all of this is sort of celebrated online um and people yeah people are people are like sort of very open about it uh, you know on their on their online personas no for, for real and i mean Especially the boys' love in particular, and outside of, like, the pornography. Because I think a lot of boys' love doesn't even get, like, viewed that way, you know, as, like, porno mags. It's, like, it's so prevalent that they have dramas on TV that are boys' love-themed every season. Like, my boyfriend watched them. Like, we went and saw a boys' love movie in theaters last year. It's, like, it's just so here. And we were kind of talking about this with river on my idols episode but it's like at least like japan like created an outlet for it whereas like in america it's just it's like filtered into like non-binary identity and like k-pop and it's just diffusing into more horrifying directions whereas like in japan it has its form and it did develop into tagame which i think we should start to talk about yeah like i feel well i feel like like tagame for at least me personally like kind of or or bara manga in general um which which is the sort of more explicitly male genitalia filled version of yaoi 
um, that actually has a, a concrete sexuality underneath it. If, if Yaoi is just sort of these like bizarre angelic figures sort of gently brushing against each other underneath an Instagram filter, Bara is this, these, these raw, um, exuberantly masculine figures with, with hard horse stick. Uh, like, like imagine your horse girl suddenly getting <laughs> off the pony and the horse has like a nine inch fucking hard on, <laughs> like a two foot hard on. Like that is, that, that is sort of the, the horror and ecstasy of Bara manga. But you know what I would also kind of like compare it, especially here in American culture too, WWE. Like WrestleMania, mm. if you think about it, a lot of their like storylines in Bara are like so dramatic. Oh yeah. So like, I mean, it's it's literally like part soap opera, part like hardcore porn. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's exactly that, and the way it draws like its tragic masculine figures and the mythology that goes into creating them, it is all very WWE and. For anyone who's not familiar, Tagame is an openly out gay manga artist and writer. He's done a lot of column and like uh, nonfiction as well. He does a lot of activism on his Twitter, and he is just a very like friendly, sweet looking man who has like a cute little bear icon on his Twitter and like retweets pictures of oh, cute yeah. dogs and tweets about his Shiba Inu, and then writes um some of the most depraved like fisting shit (laughs) piercing beat up rape octopus like everything is there and uh he is definitely an icon of a japanese gay iconography i i think especially to people who don't live here yeah definitely um well do you do you see people reading tagame like is he no is he a a public (laughs) figure no, I mean, in Nichome, and I could be completely mistaken about this because, like, my gay friend circle here is quite small, and uh, I think that some of my, like, weirder, pervier friends are, like, definitely, like, aware of him, but, like, my very, like, nice buttoned-up boyfriend had never heard of him. Um, I remember that in there's this one bar in Nichome that has a giant mural of two uh, Togame characters, like, going at it. Uh, I think I, I don't think it's the eagle, but it's somewhere around there in Nichome. So it's like his imagery and iconography is there, but I don't think he has sort of like the like the name brand that he does for a lot of American borrow readers. Yeah, it's really interesting here in America. I feel like he's kind of achieved kind of this sort of quasi with sometimes like uh, Tom of Tom of Finland. Yeah. Tom of Finland, like sort of status. Cause like you definitely like sometimes in clubs we'll see, we'll see guys wearing a Gengoro Tagami shirt or, or other mm-hmm. stuff like that. So like, or like literally I've had dates where like a guy just tastefully leaves his like Gengoro Tagami <laughs> book outside. <laughs> definitely achieved like a sort of like, yeah. where it's like, it's porn, but it's also kind of a statement. Yeah, it's like art. It's it's in a way like high erotic art, which I actually think it is, but it's also per, it's also like perverted nonsense art yeah, it as well. Be appreciated as yeah. smut, also. Yeah, <laughs> smut, exactly. Yeah, totally. No, it definitely has like taken in for a uh, you know young gay men and like the uh, sort of artistic image, but it is really funny when you boil it down because it really is just for getting off. <laughs> 
Um, so I actually, when we were planning on doing this episode, I, um, I, I was like, oh, I should see if I should, I can buy a physical copy of Gengora Tagame. And I found this book called The Passion of Gengora Tagame, which was actually $500 on Amazon. And I realized <laughs> I had missed this golden opportunity about three years ago when the Gengora Tagame book, this Passion of Gengora Tagame was available in my local bookstore but I was too much of a fucking pussy to buy it because I didn't want to like you know tiptoe up you to didn't the, want to own the, like the 500 page like gay yeah. tentacle rape like BDSM horror exactly. book like <laughs> well and also like at this anarchist comic book store that I actually love like I didn't want to go up to this like sniveling little comic book nerd and be like oh here's my gay porn like <laughs> <laughs> you know um but uh yeah I but I think it's interesting like I think that 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 title is very apt, like the passion of Gengora Tagame. It, it's, it's almost it's almost giving him a kind of religious iconography, send, sending him in, sending him in in tradition with, uh, with you know, um, uh, like La Pieta or something, like these mm-hmm. like ecstatic religious symbols and like th- this this kind of like religious ecstasy or spiritual erotic ecstasy is um is almost ubiquitous across all of his erotic art in a way totally i mean everything is committed to with an absolute earnest lust for his perceived like masculine beauty and i find one of my favorite qualities about his pornography is that it tells a lot of power dynamic focused narratives that you never see in any kind of western pornography and it has such a penchant for like humiliation and domination in a way that isn't always like explicitly bdsm but can be kind of more light and just like the power dynamics of the couple and it really gives into all of the gay urges that people have to filter through and are embarrassed about and like tuck their dick behind in america yeah yeah I feel like the problem is a lot a lot of here in America sex has been like utterly politicized and there's this like sort of culture of paranoia where you, you, it is unable to see sex as anything beyond a power move. There's a very famous quote I think from like the second no the first season of House of Cards got really popular among all the liberals in my social gr- uh, group about some well like everything being about sex except sex sex being about power yeah. basically and i feel like that's kind of like the problem it's created this sort of like intense culture of paranoia that mixed basically with like some very clumsy feminism has basically resulted in this inability to see these sorts of relationships as anything beyond right. abusive and they definitely have those dangers you know you, you have to watch out but like sure. the understanding that this is kind of like a hyper reality this is a fantasy yeah in you know in performance basically like yeah there is no reason why these sorts of scenarios and these sort of relationships within certain like you know, cautionary measures could be carried out or could, you know, to some limited degree, kind of like people enjoy from them without their... And that's what I've always found like so transcendental about being a faggot is that we have the opportunity to just run at abject sex and enjoy it without having to put the cultural mask on about it and have to dance around it with all of these retarded regulations. It's like for, 
really good gay men who know what kind of power they have. Like, we get to enjoy, like, the absolute darkest perils of sexuality without having to make the cultural charade around it. I mean, at least until recently. And that's what I find so enthralling about Tagame is that it's just that essence and nothing but that for dozens of pages in whatever chapter you're choosing to read from him. Exactly. I think that the I think that the title that Rodrigo and I both kind of gravitated toward and like we were sort of holding off talking about it in person before the podcast, but the one that we did sort of start to talk about was this title called Pride. Did did you by chance read that? I have read it. So I thought that was one of his strongest works. It's like a three, it's like a three volume, I think, um, story about- I think it might be longer. Yeah, yeah, it might be, it might be longer than that, but it's essentially about this. And like, it's so interesting because Gengora Tagame in his little personal, um, in his little personal notes, he seems so kind of innocent and straightforward, but then this title Pride is actually this almost- like a Christoph Kislowski-esque kind of deconstruction of the idea of pride itself, um, mm-hmm. which which is this, like, is this sort of... Especially within the masculine context. Yeah. It almost feels like, I don't know, the really weird thing is this sort of art would never be, like, like accepted within, like, some very strict feminist circles. But I actually think, it, weirdly enough, it's very feminist in the sense that, like, it's literally toxic masculinity being raped into becoming loving, into becoming submissive, into, like, it's, <laughs> it's very bizarre, but it's so intoxicating. Yeah, I love Pride. Um, and it's he has quite a few manga in this tradition of, like, the... Um, sort of like unwilling, almost heterosexual seeming guy, like eventually being like tamed into the like gay loving role. And all of those I find to be really beautiful and almost like aching in like what is at the core of it, which is the the lust for love, honestly. But the process that we go through is like so filled with like nipple piercing and uh, dildos and being like tied up and left in the gang con that you might miss it but it all really is like an act of love when you're reading it exactly and it's interesting because like especially in in the title pride which is about like this um it's about this this total dom top who visits you know sort of uh sort of hookup spots in the forest um in like the twinkly japanese forest and you know, swats hands away that try to finger his asshole. Um, he eventually submits to this teacher um, who subjects him to further and further sort of uh, like a further and grosser ranges of sexual humiliation and domination. Um, and the entire time the professor um, rejects any kind of romantic language explicitly um, while at the same time um sort of telling them telling the main character that what he has to get the precise thing he has to get over in order for them to enjoy sex is his pride that pride itself is this kind of uh is this kind of force field that's that's stopping him from reaching the true aesthetic ecstatic heights of Mm -hmm. uh orgasm essentially so beautiful. I mean, we were just talking last week about how Larry Kramer also is like, we have to debase ourselves completely and go through the most like Maoist, ridiculous form of self-critique and 
humiliation on ourselves in order to remember what pride actually is. And I think Togame's answer of doing it, which is to throw yourself into the most perilous BDSM situation possible and put your entire soul into the hands of love is a really beautiful right well i think like even larry kramer is kind of this almost like anti-pride gay icon in a weird way and like i say anti-pride with sort of air quotes around it um but uh it it feels like and like i the the last guest you had on was sort sort of was talking a little bit about um sort of sort of gay you know a, a theme in this show is sort of gay evil and you're last guest sort of brought on the idea of sort of gay goodness and it's mm -hmm. interesting it's it's interesting to me how these terms kind of slip and move through each other like a figure like larry kramer is at once a kind of icon of sort of gay evil and decadence and yet he is in so many ways one of the best examples of how to live your life as a principled homosexual absolutely wow um, and yeah, I feel like, I feel like even Gengora Tagame is, um, is sort of, in a way, it's a sort of acceptance of sort of gay evil as a portal to sort of understanding our, understanding sort of the, the gay perspective and the gay place in the world. Like, what, like, if the archetype of evil is sort of a sort of circulates around um around an idea of homosexuality or something you know sort of re sort of reclaiming a sense of um of i guess sort of of personhood or sort of independence means sort of confronting these otherwise sort of uh sort of like darkened or uh i guess sort of De debased instincts in our own souls like that's that's the only pathway to to the kind of ecstasy that Tagora Tagame that Gengora Tagame is really pointing at yeah and I think it's just so stunning that <clears throat> he's capable of identifying like that extreme emotion and and the access to it in in such visual and honestly horrifying ways like i've read plenty of his comics where i'm like that's not for me like there's yeah. oh, plenty definitely. of moments of like no thanks but then he also you know he synthesizes all of that remains true to it and then publishes my brother's husband yeah <laughs> which is basically a uh a smiling lgbt book for foreigners or for, for Japanese people who don't understand like w that homosexuality isn't just a perversion and is also like a family and like lifestyle model and uh it's so like friendly and charming that elementary school teachers read it to learn more about gay culture and this is the same author who has like shit manga yeah who like one of his one of his fetishes seems to be like like taking your dick out of a man's ass and watching him shit himself like <laughs> <laughs> and see whereas like that kind of thing would like get you nowhere in america it's like in japan it's like you can do both <laughs> yeah exactly um well so i so i'm wondering like it, you you say that like i i feel like in Tagame, the title i see everywhere in all of the bookstores in um basically like c circulating everywhere on the web uh, that isn't sort of these dark recesses is this title my brother's my brother's husband mm -hmm. which when I saw it 
because I was familiar with Ngora Tagame, I immediately thought, oh, this is going to be a kinky, perverted exploration of a man seducing his, his dead husband's twin brother, which is not what it is at all. No. <laughs> um, and I was not actually surprised. All. The biggest twist, it, it's basically about a, a Canadian man, a, a, a white Canadian man goes to Japan um, after his husband has, his Japanese husband has died and meets his husband's twin brother, who, um, who is this sort of, uh, sort of emotionally elusive, slightly kind of caustic Japanese man with, uh, d divorced man with, with a daughter. And it's about him walking this man through the steps of confronting his, his own homophobia in a completely non-judgmental way. Um, and, the biggest twist in the entire series is that he does not have sex with his, he does not end up having sex <laughs> with his, with his husband's twin brother. Um, no, the, 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 the only, I mean, it like, it seems to be suggesting that it might happen the whole novel. If like you're into Togame at that point, like you'd be reading it for that, especially considering like the scenes in the bath, that, like see the really hot, like uh, twin brother like nakedly contemplating homosexuality um but it really is just a wholesome and like very emotional um sort of traditional family drama that has now been like adapted into tv drama and is like read by elementary school teachers and i i really find it beautiful that these characters are still all designed like absolutely typical bara characters and are presented in the climate that they could be fucking literally in the next panel, like whenever you are, wherever you are in the text. And with all of that said, it's like still probably like one of like the sweetest and like most harmless portrayals of homosexuality ever written. Well, I thought that it was interesting that one of the, um, one of the, one of the other themes in that, in that series is how, the the Canadian guy is like he's constantly feeling a little bit ashamed that he's meeting men online and that he met his husband online. Like he even tells he even tells the the twins ex-wife that he met he met his husband at a bar when actually he met him on Grinder. And he's like going out to meet men like he, he the, the the twin brother is surprised because the the Canadian guy is like oh I'm meeting a friend and he's like where did you meet this guy and he's like oh I just met him online you know which like is all is sort of this like portal to perversity um, and it's suggested that like he had sex with this guy but it all happens sort of off of the page. That's right. No, I think that the the net culture here is still really shocking. I, I mean, I just go right back to my boyfriend who was, like, horrified when I uh, told him I was going to meet one of my Twitter friends when I was in Tokyo. And he was like, you have to text me before and after that you didn't get. I'm like, we met on an app. Like, I don't understand. But it's still definitely, like, a hang-up. But, um, I mean, the whole book is, like, full of, like, shocking, like, little pearls of truth about gayness. But I, I'm just always going to be permanently amused that Tagame, like the shit author, was able to break through in that way. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think that like, it's interesting that like, there is a kind of um, lineage in a way from a book like Delaney's Hog to an author like Gengora Tagame, because like where, whereas a book like Hog is sort of pure, unadulterated, uh, sort of 
negative space, negative sexual space that just ever expands. It feels like Gengora Tagame, all of his sort of sexual degradation reaches, like reaches these, uh, reaches the sort of like spiritual fixation that is, that's really fascinating to me. Um, it's like, or like orgasm, orgasm as this sort of spiritual awakening or something. That's beautiful. I mean, like, I feel like with Hogg and with Holleran and like Kramer and a lot of like these Western gay authors, it's like the orgasm and like the, the post-nut clarity of death is like all of it reads in the way that like there are like these like pious moments where it really feels like you are reaching some moment with God or like with your entire backlog with the human history or like every single human on earth has amounted in the moment that you're coming. But there's like a, a lot more of the after stage where there is the grimness and sort of void that comes after sex. Whereas like Takame has like this really sunny and friendly approach even like with his like most debased like bdsm focused work where like it doesn't matter what happens after because you had it and it was beautiful yeah exactly um and he 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 like he fits in a lot of his erotic stories with mythology as well um he like has this one title called uh, oh shit what is it called it's it's his tarzan one i think it's called like the bitch of the jungle or something like <laughs> something completely ridiculous where like Tarzan is bound and gagged inside of a box by these like by these like German colonists and then like ritually fucked to uh <laughs> ritually fucked to orga orgasmic ecstasy like it's 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 interesting to me how all of this how all of the writing too is like very ritualistic um which is another thing that is sort of that sets it apart from a book like like <coughs> excuse me um <clears throat> sets it apart from a book like hog which has almost no ritual to it um it feels like gengora tagame is there's something almost educational about it um if like to me it's been it's always kind of like his romantic side yeah. I mean, especially, like, if you go back to Pride, like, I think that's the difference between, like, the aggressive, like, top energy that the student displays at the beginning where he's, like, cocky and everything, and the masculine dominant energy that the professor displays, which is that he's very ritualistic. Like, you know, like, a lot of times the there are accusations that dominant people can be like, you know, all, all they want is to treat you like crap, you know, like they don't, but they're actually very dedicated. If you think about it, the professor has to go through so many troubles to create these scenarios for the students. And it's like, yeah, like, like he literally even hires a cop at one yeah. point, basically. <laughs> so I think that's kind of what makes a lot of his comics, even when they get like really ugly and the consent there is kind of hazy, make them really romantic is the dedication that these dominant men basically put into these acts. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what John and I came to the conclusion about um, Deleuze when we both happened to have read Coldness and Cruelty, that like the only like really beautiful thing that we got from that was the idea that you are creating um your own mass like you're you're creating your own 
sort oh god ma- you're creating yeah. your own sadist there we go oh, yeah, yeah, you're creating yeah. your own sadist like when you're a masochist like that it's a mutual relationship that has like that sort of like beautiful interplay between like the creator and the created and i think that Tagami sees it more clearly than almost any other writer which is the sublimity in having to create what's torturing you and the artistic process of uh, being that creator and being the one created upon exactly right yeah and i think um yeah about like about deleuze you know it it, it is that is what sort of distinguishes i think a lot of gay men gay men from sort of heterosexuals which is that like you know like there, there there's always a kind of arbitrariness and a kind of um a kind of raw material to sexuality and I think for a lot of bottoms, a kind of thrill to subjecting yourself to the sort of arbitrary nature of a sort of dominant man and the sort of steps you take to sort of like entering love with them is a kind of careful craftsmanship of their sort of sadistic impulse. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Rodrigo, as a bisexual muscle top, do you have anything to say about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, yeah, like, I, I, I definitely, like, would say that some of my most rewarding uh, sexual experiences have been with, like, yeah, with, with bottoms who are not afraid of demanding a certain energy from me. Like, I, I get a lot of, like, uh, I don't always, like, I don't actually fuck that many like other muscle guys and so a lot of times i get these other guys who are like really into their my muscles and really want me to like take them there but they have this sort of very nervous energy and they don't know how to like you know well like my best experiences tend to be with these bottoms that like they don't let themselves intimidate be intimidated by my muscles instead they take it as kind of like making for them like this or because in a way they are kind of conquering in a way they are sort of like creating these beasts basically that is going to just utterly degrade and like just you know like devour in a, almost in a, in, a, in a certain way they're like physical being basically and so like it is a lot more rewarding it is a lot more like even in a, almost in a way like emotionally when like they do have that conf- like like it, it, it's very difficult to describe because it's definitely within the submissive framework but they exude this confidence of like they know you can take them there and that's what they want and they signal they're very clear in the signaling basically Oh, this is so beautiful to me, and I just I'm gonna get emotional <laughs> because it's like gay people are able to like do this like we're able to like actually communicate with each other and like find these like perverse partners to create these extremely idiosyncratic and impossible to recreate sort of circumstances whereas like when straight people try to do it it just is like 50 shades of gray which i think is a beautiful book but it's like you know it's like I, i feel upset almost that the only people who are capable of doing this are gay people and that drive is being ritually driven out from us completely extinguished well you know what interestingly i think i would add to that 
Liz, not just Fifty Shades of Grey, but also I believe the Twilight franchise. Oh, absolutely. I completely yeah. agree with you. I completely no agree with you. Yeah, Rod Rodrigo and I just watched all... Wait, are there five movies or four? There's five. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, no, the Twilight movies are fucking genius. They are the absolute, like, exorcism of all female sexual feeling into um, beautiful allegory. It's a stunning series of literature. It's like, the, it, it's just, there the kink really is that they cannot have sex. It's just, it's yeah. constantly <laughs> dripping with this, like, almost ridiculously, like, melodramatic, but just very palpable, like, sort of tension where it's like, they get on, they, like, literally, I think Vela gets turned on by the fact she's making this, like, incredibly <laughs> sexual beast <laughs> wait until marriage. Yeah. <laughs> I think that this is actually why there is, like, some appeal to, you know, trad living or whatever is because that's the only way that straight people can emulate the joy that is dark gay fucking is like by holding out until marriage right um, i think i'll cut it there for the first section great um Rodrigo, if you want you can totally stick around for the sophie yeah, you stick around for sophie? like i just like i've been yeah i have been briefly learning about her kind of new I realized that there was this like band that I really liked that T Grandma that collaborated with Sophie. I think they, she helped them make this like really great track. But like I'm still very new. I do find like her death to be kind of oddly romantic. <laughs> but why don't you? I think if you're not busy, by all means, stick around. Yeah, you. Okay, yeah, I think he has to go uh, work out. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want, I can put on the headphones now, if that, that'll help the audio. Yeah, uh, if you want to do that, I'm going to step out for a cigarette really quick, and then we'll come back and do this. Okay, cool. I will as well. Okay, see you in a sec. Here, wait, Rodrigo, can you help me um, connect to my friends? Oh, yeah. And they also have the microphone, so... Uh, John, it's really simple. When you turn them on, they're immediately going to link to my iPhone to prevent that from happening. Press the power button and hold it until not only do you hear a turn, not only do you hear a turn, you hear a turn, you're a turn, something, you're a turn. I don't even know where to begin with this. These three weeks that I have been paralleling through my gay identity and I've kind of given up hope on a new gay Larry Kramer, but I think that the last bastion for a true star of queerness to emerge is for a trans girl. And I was really attached to today's final topic in the last of my pride discourse. I was really attached to Sophie because I thought, she was it. Like, I really thought that she had all of the makings of what was going to be, like, the next fascinating and based and, like, important character in this cultural movement that we've been developing for the last 60 years, and now she's dead. Exactly. Um, and I actually, I found that um, I went through a mourning period uh, in a way that I'd never actually really felt for a celebrity. 
I, I had sort of imagined bizarrely in my mind what it would be like for someone like Bjork or Madonna to die and sort of imagining in my head in this very melodramatic way sort of what that would mean. And uh, when I heard about Soki's death, which was um, actually the off of the Not Really podcast, that's where I, I first heard that she had died. Um, I was working at a, at a COVID testing site and I was on my lunch break and um, it was absolutely shocking to me because she seemed so, so immortal. Um, and then- Yeah, so permanently alive. Exactly. And uh, even hearing the way she died, that she climbed up onto a roof to take a picture of the moon where she fell to her death, it, it all sort of just collapsed into this immediate moment of just sort of gay mythology that um, I, I felt the, the fact that her death itself felt like a continuation of the Sophie mythology um, was sort of a testament to her, her the, the, the sort of craft she had put into the image of her celebrity and the fact that who she was as a human being is, was still sort of elusive to me, um, was, yeah. st was still something that was uh that, that i that i couldn't quite put my finger on which was which which immediately seemed to me like something um that i realized was kind of missing from a lot of uh a lot of celebrity today and um i was i was riding my bike delivering for uber listening to sophie and i was climbing this hill and immaterial girl started playing and like i got to the top of the hill and like i literally just started crying like i just felt overwhelmed with emotion um, and I realized that this pride month this this death was sort of weirdly hovering over it in in my imagination at least no mine too I mean I think that I, I was just talking about this on evil thespian the other day but the two times I've been like truly affected by a celebrity death was when David Bowie died and then Sophie's passing and for David Bowie, it was that I had a really surreal moment where I had been, like, a friend had been like, oh, isn't he dead, like, months before? And I had to kind of, like, scold her for not getting it. And then um, <laughs> really anticipating the release of Black Star, hearing it and obsessing it. And I was listening to the album when I was reading on Twitter that he died. And something similar happened to me with Sophie, where I had been literally listening to her remix album while I was writing at the coffee shop. And then I was on Twitter reading that, she was dead and it was one of those things where you just can't believe it and it takes like 20 minutes of the tweets coming in before it really sinks in right exactly i mean even at the beginning it felt it felt like a rumor um and it felt like i mean in a way sophie's entire like sophie's entire presence was itself just kind of a in a weird way a kind of huge rumor or something like this incredibly like elusive and clearly genius creator um, who at the same time was making very singularly and like, you know, this word is annoying, but I think it's it's very apt for Sophie, but singularly queer art. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. And it's like, I have felt so much hesitance to call anything queer because of the absolutely bogus atmosphere the word takes on when you say it now. Like, if you just say queer, it's like, you know, I, I hear, like, bisexual woman in San Jose. Yeah. 
you know? And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's just mildly annoying, but it's like, I felt like when I was in high school, when I said like queer, like it meant like the slur almost still. And I feel like that feeling evaporated from it really quickly, but it's like the, there is like an actual like power and fascination and beauty in the idea of queerness, which is to be like, sexual and different from gender in a way that is inexplicable and impossible to put a word onto. And it's like that facet has vanished so much from what we both like do as human beings and our sexual identity that it's like, I, I already feel like a great mourning for the term like queerness because like, that's truly like what Sophie did. Right. And like, I think being on Twitter, it gets really easy to fall into these kind of death spirals where you're sort of confronting genderqueer Twitter and you become immediately sort of c- cynically opposed to the to these to these sorts of uh, these sorts of what, what I think are like very very obscene and overly academic categorizations mm-hmm. of these sort of gender identities or whatever. Um, I've, I've always felt like, like these kind of academic approaches to queerness and sexuality were a kind of colonization or something. Um, if I'm gonna <laughs> if I'm gonna use another academic term, no, go for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, I've you know I I've, I feel in particular that um, that what's happened since um, since sort of gay marriage and since the emergence of this clear psyop gender queer discourse is that we've found gender and sexuality um, have parted ways. And uh, we're surrounded by all of these uh, these angelic shamanistic gender queers who are constantly, uh, you know, co- constantly sort of screaming into the abyss about these minuscule distinctions when um when the true icons of a kind of classic queerness were deeply in touch with a sort of ambiguity and a lack of definition that Sophie felt like she was really um she was really manifesting Um, yeah I really couldn't I couldn't say it better myself ever it's so beautifully put and I have always, like, felt that I'm not, like, a typically masculine person, and I am also not a woman, but, like, for me, like, my homosexuality and, like, my drag, it's, like, I'm not, like, just gay, and I'm also, like, not trans, it's, like, I, I, like, merely am, like, queer in the word, that it's, like, I don't have a specific way to present myself, it's more, like, when I am just existing and however, like, I choose to present it when I want to, it's, like, I don't need to be any sort of identity for that. And I, I felt a lot of, you know, excitement around Sophie, especially when like, it's okay to cry was not coming out. And she had said absolutely nothing about her identity up until that point. Like it was all, you know, religiously divorced from her self and her character that seeing like bizarre, like homosexual transgender, creativity that come through at that moment was like the the perfect release but i think we should like start at the beginning of her career and and work up so i'll ask you how you first got exposed to her so i got exposed to her i think it was either 2017 or 2018 
Um, it might have actually been earlier than that. I'm I'm always a little bit late to I'm like a I'm like a constant ingenue to music because I just digest it so slowly in a way mm-hmm. in a very pure way that I can't with any other media. Like I just gobble down like movies and books and you know ha- like tend in that way tend to have very like <laughs> very almost like sort of sort of muted and desensitized reactions to them sometimes but um with with music I really choose it really really carefully um and Sophie was one of those artists who was a a, a real revelation to me um and so when, when I discovered her I was immediately attracted to um the to a kind of a, to to a kind of violence and um uh a kind of uh i don't know a sort of a sort of roughness and uh not 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 that her music itself is sort of roughly produced but a i don't know a sort of um i don't know a sort of bloody kind of jubilation that came from it i the first song i heard was lemonade um which i'm not sure if i heard it off of the mcdonald's <laughs> the McDonald's first. Commercial, yeah. yeah, I don't know where I heard it first, but the Lemonade was definitely the first song that I that I heard from her. Um, and then I dabbled around her for a while. And then when her album came out, who's like, despite my obsession with her, I still can never remember the name of it. But it's like oil is the <laughs> oil of every pearls on insides. That's what it is. Oil of every pearls on insides. Um, I mean, for me, it was it was. A forever album and and it touched that same part in my soul that Kanye West touches that um Neon Genesis Evangelion touches um wow, yes it really it's it, and and I put it in the category with those pieces because it it does feel like it's confronting this uh confronting the kind of the kind of spiritual desert we've been left with after we've all been uh, spectrally raped by postmodernism, um, where it is this kind of purity of, a kind of purity of, of form and expression that has completely absorbed the lessons of postmodernism without becoming kind of nihilistic about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was talking to GFOTY about this, uh, but the really big formative moment I had with PC music was when I was in the uh, car with my frat bros in my freshman year of college, and I put on um, a song that Sophie had produced that was on the PC music compilation, and um, my really blissfully sweet gay friend like went on to be like a DC, like, lobbyist kind of homosexual like uh you know like to wear his crop tops and was like a very like well manicured sort of like up up at uppity gay but you know bottoms and goes to clubs and gets fisted that kind of guy he was like you know bopping around like in the front of the car like just like d- having such a little blast of that song and like you know the straight girls in the back are like what is that what's this yeah yeah and i was sitting there like being the you know overly intellectual like this is this is really important for art. And I yeah. have been, that was the first moment I was exposed to Sophie. And so then when she came out with product, I was already quite like tuned in and I wanted to know what she was doing. And, and product is, is a fascinating compilation that she put out in 2015. And it was basically everything she'd done up until then, like as a, a singular artist. And up until this point, when Sophie performed live, she did not, 
often even appear on stage. She would be exactly. doing the programming from somewhere in the back and she would have drag queens appear or her face would be covered. Uh, up until that point, people still thought she was a man. Grimes hated her because she thought that uh, Sophie was appropriating femininity. <laughs> oh my and, God, no way. <laughs> oh yes. The, Grimes Fun. was like a, a, a five tweet tweet storm about how inappropriate is that male artists are hiding behind female monikers. <laughs> oh my God. Oops. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Grimes. Oops. I, you know what? I actually always, I, I, I really love Grimes and I appreciate her online glitches. Um. <laughs> oh, I do too. I'm actually a big Grimes apologist and I, yeah. like, I really don't like. Exactly. <laughs> when everyone was getting mad at her around the release of a misanthropy and I was like, Oh my God, shut up. This is so interesting. Yeah, Exactly. Um, she was like posting like her fascist like uh, climate diatribes and I was like this right. is really good stuff and everyone is like you can't how can she say something like this right well and I mean I think that like relating her to Grimes like if uh if Grimes is kind of post-apocalyptic I feel like Sophie is almost post-post-apocalyptic Absolutely. in like the, Sophie has that sort of sort of apocalyptic uh sort of almost like like Mad Max freeway texture um, but, you know, where it, like, I've always sort of thought that kind of obsession with the apocalypse was, uh, which I am, I, I, as someone obsessed with the apocalypse eternally, um, in another <laughs> way, like, being obsessed with the apocalypse is a kind of a way out, um, a sort of, I don't know, a sort of, a it, it feels kind of, kind of limping and, like, not, um, I don't know. It, it, it feels like an easy way out, I guess. No, I know. I mean, I'm extremely apocalyptically concerned as well. I mean, that's half the theme of the show is the yeah. end, of the, end of the world and the mall that's been vacated and what radio program has accidentally ended up there. But it's like the reason that it's easy to be, you know, apocalyptically minded is because like you can fashion yourself as the end of humanity and like what you're doing is like the final note. And it is lazy to do that instead of you know, trying to be someone who's contributing towards its continuation or something beautiful after the fact. And Sophie is beyond both of those realms of thinking. She is not about trying to continue the human race. She's not about the end of it. She's like, I feel like she's like almost like this like Twin Peaks, like time creation where time has already happened and is like yet to happen at once. Like she's the God particle. Exactly. Yeah, no, actually, that's funny, because Rodrigo also, when I was showing Rodrigo the music video for It's Okay to Cry, he actually also mentioned uh, David Fincher, or sorry, um, David Lynch. Um, well, yeah, I mean, they have a similar quality, because David Lynch, like, films human experience that's, like, really awkward and uncomfortable and, like, kind of broken and muddy and weighted down with too many references that it seems, like, kind of the 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 naked eye would like try to call it like camp or like cringe but it's actually just extreme earnestness and like watching the it's okay to cry video with like her barely hormonal like tits flapping around yeah. and like the <laughs> extremely like vulnerable like weepy with the green screen it's like it's the very much a similar impulse i think right exactly and like i think that um th with with sophie's with sophie's kind kind of like with the way that her identity was sort of constantly in this in this sort of state of emergence um the way that it sort of 
the way that it kind of avoided apocalypse was in the way that it always kind of stayed with the pre- with the present moment of Sophie and never never tried to kind of it never tried to sort of project itself into sort of into a sort of gospel or a sort of um into something that was kind of sacred I guess yes. and no exactly she never tried to make a polemic out of what she was doing ever exactly and it feels like um you know I, I again like I, I agree with you like I'm also I've also throughout my life been a sort of gender weirdo um you know when I was little I like wore like tutus around and was always like a um like a a, a bit of a a bit of a freak and I am incredibly concerned for these for these gender freaks on Twitter who are sort of overtly dogmatic about their approaches towards gender and categorization. Um, it seems more than more than being kind of rhetorically repellent, it feels just aesthetically repellent and like a um, like a kind of abandonment and a kind of uh uh i don't know a kind of a kind of forgetting of where of of why that ambiguity is is so important and yeah because i mean driving into the safeguard and bastion of having a thousand different ways to refer to the very small mechanisms of your identity is like it's easy and it you know it's a way to pronounce yourself in a really stark way that kind of demands cooperation and affirmation from others and that's very base basically satisfying but like the truth of it is like that it loses the allure of something like product which has no identity attached to it but a name selfie like images of water slides and then a dildo because you could buy (laughs) like you could buy a copy of the album that came packaged with a dildo and so then like when you have nothing to associate with the album, like no identity, like nothing, it makes the emotionality of that compilation really pla- like very plastic and clear and obvious. And like I, so much of the PC music realm has like this idea of like plastic or like this like hard, like plastic shell, like a case of something or like a pink translucent sort of translucent plastic. But exactly. Sophie, like, does that, but when you look into it, like, there's nothing but what's already there. So it's a really bizarre and striking material sort of art experience that I feel like hasn't been replicated anywhere else, like, since it happened. Yeah, and I think that in terms of that kind of plasticity and, um, and Sophie's, um, Sophie's unabashed embrace of kind of, a a kind of capitalist aesthetic, um, I, I was list, I was reading some some profiles of Sophie, and I listened to this one podcast. Um, and what I noticed was they were they were unwilling to approach what is disconcerting about Sophie, what is what is, uh, the kind of spiritual violence at play with Sophie that I that I love so much. And they kept they kept say they kept talking about Sophie's joyfulness. Uh, which I found really funny, and this, uh, the, the it, it's it's like 
calling Sophie joyful is the kind of thing that sort of <laughs> sort of straight people who want mm-hmm. to it's like the NPR take right exactly it's exactly the NPR take it's 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 people sort of avoiding culpability for sort of facing reality and um there's I I and without a doubt like Sophie brings me to heights of joy that a lot of artists can't even be, begin to approach um but you seriously can't you can't miss the feeling of a sort of plastic knife scraping against your skin you know like even in lemonade when she has those bubble sounds like it it doesn't sound like bubbles it sounds like you're you're like you're like biting on bubbles or something like it's it's surreal it's like a it's it's like a her music is like a is like a reverse orgasm up your penis and it like hurts or something you know like it, yeah it is there there is a sort of like very very sort of almost like like bodily pain pleasure to listening to her music well um, yeah i mean bip on product is yeah. one of my all-time favorite songs from her and is all about like forlorn like longing and like yeah you can like listen to lemonade and be like it's joyful like it's positive i mean yeah. you can like feel that way and like good for you but it's like i listen to bip and it's like my heart is being like molted and crushed exactly um yeah bip is bip is a really good one um face shopping as well um one of, one of my favorite songs by her um yeah, because that's on um, that's on a uh, oil of every pearls on insides. Exactly. Um, you know, my face is the front of shop. Uh, 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 uh. Um, it has this sort of um, you know, like, and even the images that were coming out of Sophie at the time, um, which which looked incredibly sort of surgical, um, and surreal in a way. It's this full embracement of uh of a kind of like plastic surgery aesthetic um, while also stretching and expanding and zooming it out till it shatters. <coughs> and at the same time, she was, uh, I mean, we'll just get into oil of every pearls on insides, but I mean, in the face shopping video, it's like, she's also using like the Naomi Klein, no logo font for all of the lyrics. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. No, and it's she ha- like so good. I, I just, um, the, all of the sequences of music videos coming out for that was like shocking with every turn because after having had literally nothing to imagine her with after just product and having like the void of her and when she emerged onto it's okay to cry and then like seeing everything she did like it's impossible to recontextualize for people who like weren't listening to her before that or for people who only got into her after her death like there's no way to like state like how shocking it is to yeah. see her introduce her image so early and then immediately start putting it through computer graphic like warped freak out Naomi Klein font in absolute panic mode like exactly. two singles after she started showing her face at all exactly um and with like with that with uh the first sort of collection of singles that she put out um it felt like there was because it came out that she started releasing her own music when you know when like robin thick was big you know and when like when lord was announcing the end of pop music and here we have (laughs) (coughs) excuse me um 
sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Um, but here we had Sophie completely embracing the aesthetic banality of pop music and blowing it up into a realm that no one had ever seen, but was truly the next logical step, which was taking these synthesizer noises and stretching and scraping them apart to their very, just like their core minimum and turning them into these sort of like, these like atomic uh, imagination like spectacles that were just immediately entrancing. And the fact that this genius came without any kind of concrete images, just these like abstract products that she was sort of imagining in her head was completely enthralling. Yeah, totally. I, I really just could not believe that she had gone from like literally producing Hatsune Miku and Amuro Namie, like doing a McDonald's commercial like, she did all of that, like, before product was even out. Like, she was able to kind of, like, understand where Pop was going so early that she also produced on Rebel Heart by Madonna, which is, like, the most, like, dated and, like, sort of, like, broken pop referential, like, record that she's ever done. And before, like, her own album was even out, she had been on that record. She had produced for Amuro, like, and she was able to kind of, like, through all of that, like, still be the only person in, like, popular music to see where the movement was actually going. And, I mean, you could probably say that, like, because of, like, what she was doing, like, it it was shaped and moved in that direction. But in any case, like, she had the foresight to either create it that way or, like, know it was moving in that direction. Exactly. Well, I'm actually curious. What are your thoughts on Bitch and Madonna? I think it's amazing. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't, anyone who doesn't get it, and like, I just can't explain this to you. It's like, you get it or you don't. It's such a, it's so fun. Like, it's perfect. Here, wait, sorry. I have to have a little coughing fit right now. Oh, go ahead. One second. <coughs> Ooh. All right, got all of the phlegm out of like my bowels. Okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. This is how I sound at like 8 a.m. every morning. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Um, yeah, I mean, Bitch on, bitch on Madonna to me is so, I mean, okay, so I actually didn't listen to Madam X in its full until I started listening to your other podcast. Um, <laughs> and because, I mean, you were, you were talking, because I had received the erroneous notion that it was this complete train wreck, which it is, but. Oh, yeah, it's it, a train it, wreck in the best way. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, tra- train wreck goes to its credit. And it's her, it's her utopia. Literally, yes, that, that, that that's exactly what it is. Um, it and Bitch I Madonna, um, when when I first saw the music video, when I listened to it, like you realize that, like, first of all, Sophie's Sophie's touch is unmistakable in it. Um, like that song would not would not begin to work in the way that it did if she if she wasn't taking Madonna's soul and ripping it inside out and laying yes. it laying it bare for everyone to see in in all of its just masturbatory ugly evil like it's especially it's, in that video which is like the most ridiculous like jimmy fallon like kind of sketch of like her running around oh my God, yeah. a hotel or something and the green screen celebrity appearances from Katy Perry and Kanye West and Nicki Minaj, who is, like, featured on the song. Bizarre. 
<laughs> no, and like it's just so perfect that Sophie produced it because like it's just face shopping. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, it's 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 she is face shopping Madonna, and that's so right. The music video does feel like a weird SNL skit. It has that. It's like it takes place in one of these like bizarre medical sort of um, sort of atmospheres where that like supposedly real people live in but n nothing looks like it's actually alive and she's walking through this carnival of like hashtag gay icons um and <laughs> yeah it's it's so absurd no it is and um <coughs> so we have like th this kind of sophie stuff and i mean looking towards like the end of her career with Oil of Every Pearl's on Insides. I, I just think it's, like, so perfect that she was doing face shopping, like, five years before she did face shopping. But also on that same record is Pony Boy, which is... I, I don't even oh know my where God. to begin with the I power love, of this song. I love that I love, song. love Pony Boy. <laughs> I mean, especially in the way that it followed It's Okay to Cry, the fact that you immediately get, you know, uh, Sophie singing, which, by the way... Um, that Sophie... wasn't expected from anyone. Yeah. Um, but also, like her sorry a quick divergence but like a lot of her songs feature quote-unquote uncredited vocalists which i do think she uses vocalists that uh she just sort of finds but i've wondered if a lot of these quote-unquote uncredited vocalists are actually just sophie herself manipulating her own voice okay um, one of them is mozart's daughter is and i is the name of one of them and she is definitely a uh artist who is not sophie right but i think she, a lot of them are just her and yeah. it's uh i think that's kind of like what's so fascinating about it's okay to cry is that like you're hearing like this version of her voice and like whenever you hear anything else on the album it could just literally be her again and you would never know right and it sounds like a scottish man as well um you know she she isn't trying to fem her voice up in any kind of way, um, which was equally sort of, um, I don't know, equally sort of sort of compelling the fact that she didn't take this sort of Kim Petras route of sort of infallible femininity. Um, I, I love Kim Petras, but uh, you know, like S Sophie, there was there was a kind of a kind of confidence with her with her image from the very start and the fact that she followed that uh that song it's okay to cry with pony boy you know you immediately get uh this fucking uh, this fucking like is is it a reference to the outsiders right like isn't isn't pony boy a character from the outsiders like... i mean it is so i mean maybe <laughs> i mean that's another thing it's like all these references are inscrutable it's like a whole new world is like vaguely riffing on brave new world or right. like um immaterial girl or immaterials riffing on madonna Ma yeah madonna it's like all of like these references that are like kind of there but not really and it doesn't like mean anything or it means everything right exactly um, it's a it's kind of like the postmodern joke but i i just uh pony boy is is so riveting because you get like this really tender ballad with you know it's okay to cry and this song about vulnerability and then it just is 100% opposite the other direction and it's kind of like the overall effect of the album which is like this gallery of different personas and it's like pop music kind of dying and screaming and it's like last moments and like a vocoder wherein every sort of like sexual persona like arrives in each of these songs at once
Yeah, no, no, that's exactly it. And I actually, so the album that Oil, Oil of Every Pearls and Insides reminds me of is actually Broke with Expensive Taste, which... Oh my God, amazing. Which was another that's album... So true. Which was another album that was ahead of its time. And what both of these albums have in common is that every single... They, they resist a kind of classic continuity that a lot of pop albums that, that like Dua Lipa or something is trying to go for, you know, like do like Dua Lipa, bless her heart, but her latest album is a little bit contrived and um, <laughs> like, breaking news on I'm so breaking, funny. breaking news. I've been um, shitting on that album like since the start of my fucking show. Yeah, no, it's like, it's, pre- it's pretty fucking contrived and the kind of Instagram filter over it feels really false. Whereas it felt like, Albums like Broke with Expensive Taste and Oil of Every Pearls and Insides were these albums where every single song was its own sexual persona. It was yeah, its absolutely. own brand new reimagining of Sophie. And I remember and, when it came out and Anthony Fantano and like Pitchfork were like, this sequencing isn't very good. I don't really understand the momentum of this album. It's like, well, bitch. fuck you. Like, of course you don't, Anthony Fantano, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> liberal bitch. Exactly. I hate that fucking man. I'm so tired of him tweeting about Donald Trump on Twitter. Anything else, please. Jesus Christ. They should just, they should just all be, I, people need to like find racist tweets for all of these fucking libtards and just like have them, have them swallow the sword they've been waving around this entire time. Like, please, like, you know what? We're in, like, woke cancel culture, so can it at least, like, cancel some people who are actually annoying? Who are annoying and not talented. Um, (laughs) Like, literally, like, the worst. No, ugh, unbearable. I mean, the reception towards this album when it came out was really fascinating for me, because I had been... I don't care. I'm going to sound pretentious about this and gatekeeping, and I don't care. I had been into Sophie for so long, and then... My friend Kyle, for instance, who was, like, on the show two weeks ago, like, uh, hadn't heard anything. was like, what is this? When I played him Sophie the first time, when my iTunes pre-order of the album came in. And then he went to New York a week later and saw her at Pride. And so it's like, you know, this album... You're like, bitch, you stole that for me. (laughs) She did, and she knows it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But this album was, like, the, the big moment for her, where it's like, she turned all of the mythos about her into this enormous pop moment that like got her in the guardian right exactly and and also a sort of a sort of statement a sort of anti-identity statement in a way um totally that also like was a sort of perfect thesis for what sophie was you know looking to accomplish and yeah because everyone just read it as like trans woke empowerment which is you know lovely and fine but that's not what the album not the, is about at all. Not the whole story, babe. This isn't all just just trans joy. Like <laughs> it's very scarcely trans joy at all. It's like the it's like the dark, frozen inverted waters of hell, like that eventually like rises into just like the pure transcendence of immaterial, which is my favorite song by Sophie. I think it's her best song. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like, I I think I think it just merely is. I mean, um, you go from like, is it cold in the water, which has like this transcendental like looping synth to it that is completely subduing, and then like it explodes with immaterial, and it, of course like people might listen to it and just be imagining that it's like, oh, like it's okay to 
identify as someone who's not cis and it's like okay to be gay it's born this way but the song is not born this way this song the song is like a frightening like space void about exactly there being nothing right (laughs) and and that's beautiful it's like it's gorgeous that there's nothing and that there's no specific language to describe yourself with there's absolutely no meaning to any words like there's nothing at all and that is gorgeous right and then we have all of these word worshippers uh to steal a phrase from camille palia uh, because that's all that i do for a living but um these word worshippers on twitter who feel compelled to constantly (laughs) recategorize and like reassert the firm boundaries of identity and gender and sex and insist that gender and sex have nothing to do with each other. And uh, when when all of these words are just sort of like vague, vague smells that we catch like, uh, that we like glimpse on the air, like it's just, uh, you know, these like these, these tiny little like fleeting intuitions that we can sort of grab and point to and, um, yeah, I just, I think, I think Sophie from the very beginning has been both sort of like a a poet in terms of the specificity of both her like mu- musical and just like literally like the, the li- like linguistic poetry of her, of her works. Um, wait, where is that thought going? Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think like, I think especially with the song before Immaterial with uh, pretending which oh yeah is exactly what you're talking about is this is this kind of like begrudging nihilistic descent um you know just sort of just sort of noise noise that uh builds to that this you know this song and material which i've always this might be me digging too much this might be like literally the english major in me but i've always thought that there was a pun there between like i've always heard I'm a material girl in between a material girl. Like, Oh uh, no. Like uh, my, my friend Ava literally thought it was just a Madonna sample when yeah. she heard it. Like I, yeah. the, it's definitely deliberately like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's like that, that sort of, that sort of, that sort of wordplay and the sort of, um, that sort of rebellious sort of, uh, that, that sort of like re- rebellious, um, sort of, um, you know her resistance to any kind of any kind of putting any any kind of uh i guess sort of sort of clarity or something or or specification is exactly what what queerness has always been about yeah totally and the record ends with whole new world which it's oh, either yeah. immaterial girl or a whole new world. That's my favorite song. And it's it's ten minutes. It starts out as like one of her most aggressive and then kind of just like breaks <laughs> apart into like spatial sludge at the, by the end. And uh I I just think that this song closing out the album where we have like created this like universe and there is nothing but just like human souls in it and like language is merely just some broken barrier between us and this is like the closest like auditory experience i've ever gotten to feeling that way and that's why when this record came out i was like i was so emotional about it it was like june i had just graduated like a week before i was uh about to move here and I would just, like, listen to the Immaterial Girl, like, followed by, like, Whole New World, like, back-to-back, and I, like, felt like the world was opening in front of me. 
Right. Yeah, no, it's like it's like the de- it's like the spiritual desert at the end of apo- uh, at the end of the apocalypse. It's like after the world ends, you're still left with the physical universe you have to sort of walk among and survive and hold the world is sort of you know when she's once she's reached these sort of transcendent ambiguous uh heights of immaterial it it just swan dives straight into this this schizophrenic abyss uh whole new world where she's just you know like she it, it feels like she's just driving down the highway you know in a sort of like mad max vehicle sort of just like sma- smashing through this post-apocalyptic landscape um and it's <laughs> yeah, like it's crushing bodies exactly no and it's it's all uh very moving to me before she passed away she also released her uh, remix album that initially yeah. she only sold 150 uh, copies of with a clutch and then eventually came out on Spotify and the, the remix album is also amazing and kind yeah, of definitely. puts all of like this music like into a house context that's uh, extremely progressive and basically like one of the only albums that they consistently write to still and she shot a music video for a song called Trans Nation that never came out and uh, the video leaked recently on Twitter and this was kind of the the moment I had where I keep thinking about how there's no gay men left to be like the fascinating cultural figure for us. Like there's no one left to be the totem, but Sophie was about to be. And it was because she released like this video. She was planning to release this video of her and a bunch of really hot tea girls, like slapping their asses, like rolling, like complete sexualization of them. 100% like, objectification everything perverted nonsense yes exactly and it's like i've been saying for weeks now that i'm like we need kanye west to date a trans girl like we need drake to date a trans girl and it was like sophie as usual was like on to the move and she was like okay no more like if she if we're gonna play the id politics game it's not gonna be about like hugging it out and like you know, justice for trans lives. It's going to be about like hot tea girls like getting their butt slapped at the club. Exactly. It's, um, and that, I mean, that's like, that's like what the fight even means in the first place. It doesn't, yes, it, it doesn't mean sort of like throwing, throwing yourself before the false idol of identity politics and, you know, like pre- presenting your like personal struggle to the world. It means transcending that and, um, sort of, I don't know, like, Sophie really was just this explosion into the universe and was the clear pathway that I think, you know, a- actual self-respecting queer artists should look at. And it, it shouldn't be through this kind of, this sort of bullshit ID poll, like, sort of political lens where everything is written for the academic write-up where they check, you know, they, they check all of the boxes and make sure that everything fits fits perfectly with uh with the sort of queer theorem that they've designed for us um that's like completely sabotaged any kind of purity or uh or honesty from 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 queer identity yeah because why be weepy and esoteric and put thousands of minute borders around yourself with jargon that is completely practically useless when 
you can just surrender to absolute sublimity and horror at the fact exactly. that there's nothing except being hot and having fun and <laughs> having sex. Like, that is real. And everything else is fake. And that is what I've learned about gay people in these last three weeks. God bless Sophie. I'm, I'm, God bless Sophie. I'm really waiting. The, when I heard about her death, I had this alternate reality fan fiction written out in my head where she was going to rise from the dead and that <laughs> this was this was all some sort of like because that's truly how bizarre her death felt oh um, it was just shocking i mean the going up and falling from the building and then i it really disturbed me because i had read on sega bodega's instagram story three days before it was like is there anyone in what were they in greece i forgot they're in athens right athens yeah yeah he was like is there anyone in athens who can transfer blood this is urgent and like no one knew what he was talking about and then three days later it's that sophie is dead and she needed a blood transfusion jesus christ oh my god that was one of those i had no idea time apart for me wow um yeah i mean there's you know, I've always had this image of her just sort of floating up into the moon and dispersing into space particles. And then, you know, you're left with this whole new world-esque kind of horror show. Um, like, a, a, like a moment of just like real mourning and remembrance. Um, and, you know, like I, it's sad to me that our sort of gay consumerist sort of mindset that needs to sort of constantly recycle the same like sort of 10 commandments about gay empowerment is hasn't that that people aren't really coming to terms yet with Sophie's death and what she actually meant which is like which is why I I was looking forward to talking about her because I I really do like I really do think she was one of the last one of our last icons of of real queerness in, in the classic sense of the term. Um, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll remember her forever for that. Yeah, and I think it's going to be an uphill battle as time goes on for her to be remembered in, in the way that she should be and not as kind of like this stake post for people's misplaced political ideology. And I'm just thankful that, like, I got to have, like, my age... 21 to 24 like surrounded by the promise of new sophie music and that was a a really a riveting time for me to be like a young person who likes culture and i don't really know what or who is gonna step up next and it seems grimmer by the day but i mean it was there (laughs) once it can be there again you are stepping up zach Thank you. (laughs) Not to cut it it there. Why not? Why not? (laughs)